All right, beautiful. And, uh, and go ahead and, and grab a seat. Paul's letter to the church in Roman Corinth. We're in the third chapter as we have divided the chapters up as an uh, early modern church. But this is part of the letter that is in the same exact mental space as the chapters that have gone before it. Paul of Tarsus is writing to a series of communities, households in Corinth, hip, cool, avant-garde, rich, culturally savvy Corinth. He's writing to them and he's addressing something that all of us need addressing, which is the fact that you and I and they were raised and socialized in a context. Let me bring the mic down just a touch because I, I do tend to boom my voice, as a lot of people in my life tell me. Um, we have all been raised in soil. We've been socialized into a way of being human based on cultural priorities, things, models that are uh, put out for us that say this is success, this is what it means to really thrive as a human being or in human community. And here's Paul, who is now rethinking everything, as we talked about a couple weeks ago and last week, in light of the fact that the brilliance, the majesty, the power of the living God was displayed on a Roman cross. You could see Paul still trying to wrap his heart and brain around that reality. The reality that God's fullest revelation of himself. If you want to know where Christianity is weird, wonky, and strange on the stage of world religion, here's where we, I'll speak as a Christian, are totally weird. A little bit absurd is the fact that one of the core tenets, one of the worldview elements of following Jesus is the fact that the God of all creation dwelt with human beings, and that's crazy, but not only dwelt, but gave his life to make things right which had gone terribly wrong. Everyone knows there's a problem in the universe. I don't know any human being that's reflected that's going to say, oh, things are pretty good. If you're going to say that, then let me just take you by the hand to some places on this planet and we'll investigate how good things are, right? We all know there's a problem. The Christian answer that's really weird is that God self-initiated a solution to that problem and gave of His life, and this is where it goes off the deep end, and did so as a victim of Roman judicial savagery. Was displayed on a pair of sticks meant to display slaves' bodies as they died for sometimes up to a week. It was a place of social death first, and then physical death that followed. This, Paul of Tarsus says, I now have to rethink everything about my understanding of God and what it means to thrive as a human being. We all have a similar challenge and task and problem, particularly... Those of us, like me, that live in a context that is exciting, culturally speaking, and that there are all sorts of interesting and even seductive messages that are making their way through my mental space, 
and I, I need to relook at that which is at the center of all that matters. And it's a Roman cross. As Bill said last week, he held up that football. I think it was last week, right? The football. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, this is a football. As Paul of Tarsus would hold up a cross and say, ladies and gentlemen, this is a cross. Everything seen through this prism changes. And so what we're seeing and what we'll continue to see case by case is how those things change using the case studies or example of the Corinthians. We, me, I'm a church kid. Any church kids out there, people raised in church? I know some, I know Jacob's right there, church kid, church kids. Church kids, right? I was raised, I was born on like a Tuesday. I was in church on Sunday. I have been to more chapels, retreats, small groups, sermons, then you have been to like a Starbucks or like you've seen episodes or episodes of CSI exist, okay? I have been to a millions of these things, right? I smell like church. Just get a good waft of me. It's like a church bulletin and communion elements. It just comes flying out of me. And so my, my weird reality is the fact that unlike the Corinthians and unlike many of you, I really didn't know any world that didn't have a cross or Jesus stories or songs about God or holy people. It just wasn't in my, my world was church. It was this thing called church. And so as I reflect on this message today, which is a, a text written to churches about churches, I am speaking as an insider reflecting on this thing we all do called churching. Okay, so if you came today and you're just kind of curious about Jesus or someone put you in a headlock and dragged you here, God bless them. That's not how we do it, though. Please know that. But if you're here checking it out, I want to invite you to eavesdrop on a conversation because I kind of want to have an in-house conversation today. And if you've ever eavesdropped before, which I never have, of course, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but if you've ever eavesdropped before, sometimes you learn more from listening in than from being talked to. So let's have a family conversation today and let Paul of Tarsus kind of guide us. I've entitled the message, Deconstructing Churchianity. I have also trademarked that term. That is my term. If you hear it anywhere else, there will be a cease and desist letter sent to that person. This is my term, churchianity. Okay, what is churchianity? Churchianity, it's kind of like this. I have a full object lesson metaphor. So here's some, I have some delicious elements. Peanut butter, Trader Joe's. I'm talking the kind you have to stir up, right, that, that's healthy for you or good for you. And some delicious multi-flavored clover honey. These are so delicious. Do these go well together? Oh, heck yeah, they do. Amen, hallelujah. We should close in prayer. Get Godwin on the keys. Finish up this message right now. I also brought a couple fresh slices from this morning of Trader Joe's whole grain, everything healthy possible injected into it bread, right? Really good stuff once you get used to it, once your wife makes you eat it for a while. And, and essentially, I'm going to make a sandwich so this is this delicious deliciousness. Let's call this Jesus culture. 
Let's call this when Jesus looks at what it means to be human and human community, he says, this is what you want to smather all over your life together. So this is it. A nice big, well, this is not as much as I would normally do, but for the sake of health purposes, I'll keep it thin sliced, but it's nice. Forget that. I'm going big. (laughs) Tons of peanut butter. Just deliciousness all over the place. And it's good and it's wonderful. And then you get a little honey in there. Pop the top. It's five o'clock somewhere, right? Here we go. <laughs> Throw some honey on that. And who wants this? Oh, yeah. uh, some of you do. You're like, I, I, yeah, we'll put it in the communion bread and see if someone just grabs at it. But so this is, this is Jesus' vision of human community. And how do you find out what that is? Well, you read through his life, his teachings in the communities that rose up in his name in the scriptures. You pray and you see it lived out with great models today. So this is Jesus stuff. But there are other things in our culture. Things that aren't all necessarily bad. They're not just bad. Like this right here, this is a delicious slice of turkey. Okay, It's also Trader Joe's. No nitrates. The turkeys, they all wanted to die to make this sandwich. Okay, This is that, that kind of meat. Really healthy meat. Really delicious. And when we say, hey, let's take this other thing. This other thing, which by itself might be just fine, and let's kind of spread that on as well. And then you close up the sandwich. What you end up with, there's a few weirdos out there that will eat these. They're not weirdos. They just have weird tastes. But for most of us, we're like, no, 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 no. Those don't go together. You've soured the whole thing by injecting a foreign item into what was otherwise a tasty, tasty, delicious sandwich. Okay? In Switzerland, I don't know if you have this kind of stuff. Maybe it's a delight there. But here in the States, we don't really do that. Okay, This is churchianity. It's what results when a religious, maybe traditional, ritual set of priorities merges together with this delicious, beautiful picture of human community in Christ. And it comes together, and you taste it, and you go, I recognize all the flavors, but they just don't taste good together. Or this is what results when we allow in, whether consciously or unconsciously, certain priorities or ways of doing things that come from another cultural current outside of Jesus' tradition. And it fuses with the thing we're doing called the ecclesia, Greek term just means the folks gathered together in the name of Jesus. And what happens and and what what is uh, created is churchianity, right? So there's all sorts of ways of describing this and talking about it. I will stop now and I'll put that there as a reminder to all of you. So the title of the sermon, Deconstructing Churchianity, And the outline follows basically what I'm calling three not always so easy steps. Three not always so easy steps. And let me bring this in as we dip our toe into the scripture. Let me bring this very personally here at the River Church. And I'm talking to the River Church not because the River Church is the church or it's the best church or it's the only one that matters. I'm speaking to our community because that's the community I'm a part of and we all are at today. We're all gathered and forming today. So when I give this message, please know something from the bottom of my heart. This is not a message that says, all those sinful people out there. 
and their other churches. Oh, Lord, help them. We're going to do it right in this church. Okay? If you hear that message from me, somebody like throw, throw something at me. Light and fluffy, but something to get my attention. That's not the message I'm saying. And if you hear that message somewhere else, you're in what we call a cult. You need to leave before they serve the lemonade, okay? That's just helpful, free advice for me today. But this is really a self-reflective for us, the river, in the place we're at right now. Um, how can we deconstruct churchianity? We're 12 years old. We're, we're a tweener now, right? We're like, we've gone through puberty as a church here. We're at that age where the question, by the way, you can quote that, hashtag it on Twitter. Um, we're at, we went through puberty as a church. Just thought it'd be an interesting phrase. But we are truly at a certain age, 12 years old, where we are wide open to allow calcification, to allow certain things to become part of the ingredients of who we are that maybe have nothing to do with Jesus' vision for human community. And so this is being uh, discussed today as a very real opportunity for us to say, how can we not fall into the seduction of pop churchianity as a community? Okay, so Paul gives us three steps that are not so easy. The first one, I'm just going to give it to you, and I'm going to read the text. The first step, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, don't take yourself too seriously. Church, do not take yourself, individual, too seriously. He begins in verse 3 of chapter 3. You are still worldly. You are still worldly. Or the term literally is fleshly, the word that he likes to use, which means y'all Corinthians, you're still operating in the old system. You've gone back to factory default settings. And here's how they've done that. Since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not fleshly or worldly? Are you not acting, this is a funny phrase, are you not acting like mere humans? You're just acting like normal humans. Which is a way of saying you are soaking in the pool or the cesspool of your culture, and you're allowing that to be your modus operandi in your day-to-day life and as a church. And how are they doing that? For one of you says, well, I follow Paul. Another says, well, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings now? Are you not acting, again, according to the stock diet of your culture? You're just doing what you've always done. You're just stapling Jesus onto it and calling it Jesus stuff. What are we, he says. This is beautiful. By the way, Paul, an apostle. Apollos, an apostle. This is what he has to say about apostles, which we'll speak more on. I'll I'll have a chance to talk about next week about the apostolic ministry. Sounds really fancy, but we'll see. It's actually quite um, different than that. What is Apollos and what is Paul? Here's what we are. We are servants. That's diakonoi. Literally the term, we we transliterate it to mean deacons, right? That's just a transliteration. But here's what a diakonoi, or diakonos is. Diakonos is, hey, are are you good over here? Do you need anything? You put a towel over your arm. Hey, need a refill? I'll be right back with that refill. How's the temperature in here? Is it good? Is everyone feeling like they're good? Hey, can we get a couple more chairs in the back? 
Right? This is what a deacon does. Uh, 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 it's, it's a waiter. A sir, it's literally translated one who serves at a table. That's all apostles are, he says. We're folks who put a towel around our, over our arm and serve. So you're turning us into some pop celebrity that you're all sort of screaming at, over here, over here, Paul, can we get a shot of your profile? And he's going, no, that's not what I am. I'm just a servant. He says, neither one, he says, I plant a seed, Apollos watered it, but it's God who makes it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Don't take yourself too seriously. You are not that important. There's something nice to write on your mirror, right? And wake up in the morning. You are not that important. Don't take yourself too seriously. I love, and we love as a culture, we love celebrity stuff, right? We kind of do. And I don't think it's all bad. I think it's kind of like that turkey, right? By itself, it could be fun. How many of you, you've been sitting at a coffee shop or a movie theater or somewhere and you look over and there's a celebrity near you? How many of y'all had that experience before, right? You're kind of like, oh, they're right there. I'm going to be cool. Be cool, man. Be cool. What's up? And you use that first name. What's up, Brad? Brad Pitt reference. And it's kind of fun. One of my favorite memories as a high schooler, I remember in uh, 1998, the summer of 98, I'm walking, we just got done surfing, me and Chris Iomo over here, and my beautiful wife, then just friend, Bray, and, and our other buddy, um, who shall remain nameless right now. No, I'm kidding. We're kind of in a thing with him. No, it's good. Uh, a total inside joke between me and Chris. And we're walking in the Hermosa Fair. And we're walking, and there she is. And it's like, all of a sudden, like those 80s movies where everything stops, and Lady in Red. Not song, I don't know. And you're like, oh, there she is. It was none other than Kelly Kapowski. Tiffany Amber Thiessen, if you don't know that name, if that's not ringing a bell, let me tell you something. I measured every woman up against her until I married my wife, but right until I married her. I mean, I'm saying I do, and then I finally stopped doing it. It was Kelly Kapowski, so we followed her around. We're like, Kelly! I think stars love when you use their character names, not their actual names. Kelly! Why'd you leave Zach? And her security invited us to not follow her any longer. My, one of my favorite moments, this is a, I need to share this for personal reasons. One of my favorite moments, they were filming La La Land in Hermosa Beach. Y'all remember that? La La Land in Hermosa Beach. I happened to be down there that day. I was looking pretty darn cool, if I don't say so myself. I had a cool beard, well-crafted beard. I was dressed kind of neato. I had my leather satchel, so you know things are looking important. And I was going to go to a Starbucks to work on my book which is a really boring book, but I like it. And people were there to try to catch a glimpse of a movie star. And one lady from a little bit of a distance goes, Ryan Gosling! And I'm like, the next one is, Ryan? Ryan! People thought I was Ryan Gosling for a moment. And so I stopped everything. I'm like, what would Ryan Gosling do right now? And I'm like, I waved and I ducked into Starbucks. I only share that because... I normally get Ed Helms, which is like Andy from The Office. So it's refreshing once in a while to get a new look from 
an admiring fan. So celebrity is kind of fun, right? It's, it's nothing necessarily bad, but as, a, as the culture of celebrity in, makes its way into a church, we can do it large scale, where we put on these giant pedestals our favorite big name pastors or bloggers or leaders. And like we run our entire faith through these six or seven authors and everything they say, we're like, well, that must be the last word on it. Or worse yet, we can pit one off another and we become these lackeys for these larger Christian leadership names. And it can be a problem, large scale. Let's just go small scale for a second. In a local church of any size, it is so easy to begin to construct hierarchies wherein pastor, oh, pastor, oh, Rev, he's a man of God or a woman of God, and you want them praying for you, not that person. They really got the prayer power, right? And you sort of play favorites, and it can become a thing. And I'll speak as a pastor. You could, you could eat that up. You really easily can become a little bit excited about, wow, I'm kind of seen as, you know, something holy. And left on its own, that can lead to the higher up your platform goes, the more you're hiding things in your own life. The less you're connected to actual people in real community that are calling you out or encouraging you or just telling you, hey, don't take yourself so seriously. You are not a big deal. And God, it's refreshing. I need to remember that. And so Paul is encouraging this community and our community, I would say, to just lose that Christian celebrity complex. Don't let it sneak in or creep in. If you're new with us here at the River Church, we do not treat our pastors any differently than we would treat any person on this team. And that I will say from the bottom of my heart. And as a pastor, and I know I speak for our pastors, we do not want to be treated any differently. And that goes the same for any of you grounded group leaders, people involved in ministries. We don't see that as a status hierarchy up the ladder closer to Jesus. Rather, here's what being a pastor is. You have been freed up in your life, partially financially, partially with time and space, and a community has commissioned you to celebrate the good news. To wave a banner in a parade of love that we're a part of called the church. Okay, so that's, that's something I think is important. And on, on one more piece here that I want to mention it's very easy as Christians to take ourselves way too seriously. To think about the Christian life as a head, kind of head low, slowly walking our way to Mordor to get rid of a ring, right? And, and Lord of the Rings reference. And it's this real, oh, it's a heavy thing following Jesus. Boy, it's a, it's a slow, lonely road, Right? I have decided to follow Jesus. I can't talk now. I'm on my lonely road following Jesus. And all kingdom come. And that is just not the picture you see when you listen to Paul talk about the communities he is immersed in. It's a celebration every time he opens a letter. Except for Galatians, that was a different thing. But everywhere else, you want to go real gnarly? Read some martyr texts. That's the text I'm working in for my new book. Which, it's going to be really boring. But it's about martyrs, and I'll tell you something, you get an ancient martyr text, these are not people going, oh, lonely road. I made that song up. They're saying, praise Jesus, this is it, this is what we're here for. 
So the, the walk of faith, if it becomes boring and calcified and one of a giant burden that you've tied on, and I have, I've, I've given up everything to follow you, Jesus, then you're not marching to the beat of the right drum. You need to change your playlist up a little bit. Freshen it up. One of the commitments at the River Church when it was uh, sort of coming together 12 years ago was we wanted to be about this, that, and the other, and I forget those things, but I remember this one. I don't forget them. It was, we want to have fun. Church should be not a, a, a fun entertainment. That's not what I'm saying. It should be an amazing time of camaraderie. From pastors to parking attendants and everything in between, it should be something of a beautiful caravan of love and celebration and joy and fun. And it shouldn't be something that we look in the mirror and take ourselves too seriously. If the River Church went bye-bye tomorrow, Lord forbid, the kingdom of God is going to thrive and grow and bless and spill out everywhere. God does not need us. He invites us in. And so we grab a tambourine. We should actually have had tambourines here today for this. We grab a tambourine and we, we celebrate. So that's kind of one point. Don't take yourself too seriously. Then on the flip side, this is kind of weird. I'm going to paraphrase it, then I'll read it to you. Then he says, here's another step to avoiding churchianity, to not getting crusty and rusty and calcified. You need to take y'all's self more seriously. You're like, what the heck? Like, what are you talking about? You just told us not to take ourselves too seriously. And then in the next breath, he says, do you know what you are? You don't, do you? You don't, you don't realize who you are. With that great scene from Hook, that movie, right, where Peter Pan is an old dude, Robin Williams, and that kid starts flexing his face and going, there you are, Peter. There you are. It's like Paul's grabbing the church by the face and going, oh, you don't see it, but I see it in you. You're something so much bigger than you think. Collectively, Whereas individuals might take themselves too seriously. Collectively, he said, y'all don't take this thing called the miracle of the local church seriously enough. In 1 Corinthians 3.9, he transitions into, for we are co-workers in God's service. He's talking about apostles. You, though, you are God's field. And then he switches metaphors. No, no, no. You're God's building. And as you jump down into verse 16, he says, Don't y'all know, second person plural, y'all's the best way to render that, don't y'all know that you yourselves are God's temple? God's Spirit dwells in y'all's midst. You are God's temple. And God dwells in your midst. Have you forgotten who you are? You've become so obsessed with who Apollos is or Paul is. He smiled at me. That you've forgotten who y'all are together. This could sound at first glance, this idea of you are a temple, it could sound like a charming, sweet nicety. Like, that's cute. I'm going to put that a decal on my car. You know, God's temple on board. Bam, bam. This is, this is really sweet and cute. And it's memorable. That's great. But when you then just take five minutes and look up and study temple in the Hebrew Bible and images of the temple, 
And you think about, for example, the commissioning of Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah, where he says, I saw the Lord high and exalted in his temple, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And there's these spiritual beings praising him. You're going, oh my gosh, Isaiah's first statement is, Lord, I'm an unclean person with unclean lips. I come from a place of people with unclean lips. I'm dead. He's so overwhelmed by the holiness of God. In the Hebrew Bible, the way architecturally God's grandeur was illustrated so many ways, one of those ways was with the temple rituals. There's like concentric circles, almost like radiation readings, like it sounds like that, sort of, the crackle, 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 oh, more radiation, more radiation. There's sort of this idea of God's glory dwelling in the temple, and the further out you get, maybe the less crackly it is, and certain people were allowed to get closer, and certain other people could get closer, and certain other people could get closest one day a year, that's it. So the message, the headline reads, God is so holy, so beautiful, so powerful, so glorious. Here's an image, if you would, on the slides. I think there's an image coming up of, this is a sand hill. Oh, no, this is it. This is the second temple era. This is not uh, in the Hebrew Bible. This is now a second temple era, first century, we'll call it. A.D., the temple courts that Herod built, you'll notice the giant retaining wall. The western wall still stands today. That's the wailing wall. The western wall of the temple courts. The temple itself is long gone. Here's an overview blueprint of the temple courts and the temple. Next slide, if you would. Fascinating. This is the kind of image that keeps my students awake at night, right? No, it's, it's like ether on PowerPoint right here. But let me explain it. The first court would be the court of the Gentiles. This is a large meeting area when Jesus clears the temple, when the early church began to meet in Acts chapter 2. This would be the area they'd meet in. It was a giant meeting area. Anyone with respect could meet there. But then, the next level in, now this is prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, the next level in would be what's called the court of the women. In this court, it was all men and women who were of descent of Abraham, who were Jewish. They could, could trace their bloodline and they would identify as Jewish. They could come in there. Gentiles, that means me, that means most of the Corinthian church, people like them were not allowed to go past the court of the Gentiles. Beyond the court of the women was the court of Israel. Here only Israelite men could come and beyond that, the court of the priests. And beyond that, the holy place. And beyond that, the holy of holies. Like a bullseye for God's pulsating glory. And only one person, one time a year on Yom Kippur, could go into the holy of holies. Read Leviticus 16 at all of the ritual requirements it took to just get that one person into that holiest place. And now Paul is... There's one more slide. This is actually interesting. The era Paul's writing in, this is a sign marked on this balustrade or a, a barrier between the court of the Gentiles and the court of Israel, or the court of the women. This is a, 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 a boundary marker, and it actually has a warning engraving. We found two of them. By we, I mean archaeologists, not me. And it reads this, No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple 
zone whatsoever. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. Okay, so this is very serious division. And here Paul is telling the Corinthian church, you can take it off now, thank you so much. He's telling the Corinthian church, not only are you now as Gentiles invited into the presence of God because of the work of Jesus, not only are you invited to go past those courts and walk into the Holy of Holies, rather, when you assemble, you are the temple of the living God. Do you hear that? Do you understand that? You don't know what you are, do you? You are the miracle of the local church. The miracle of the local church. I am sort of a stickler for sacred space theology. That means I won't argue you on a lot of things. I really won't. Love passionate discussion. But I will get in a bit of a dialogue debate about sacred space. I don't believe that there are places, architectural spots on this earth, that are any more holy than anywhere else. Where the people of God join, whether it's on a beach, in a pavilion, or in a palace, that becomes holy, sacred ground, something not to be trifled with. And so Paul would tell this church, you're fighting over following your favorite celebrity pastor. Let me tell you something. They're nothing but servants. That's all they are. You're dividing up God's temple, holy temple, to chase after something that's an illusion. You don't know what you're tearing up. It's not some random conglomeration of tithers and attendance people and folks that raise their hands during worship and then disassemble. Something sacred happens that Paul has to give them lenses to see. You are the miracle of the local church. My last point's really short, so never fear. That clock is from the devil himself, just so you know. The the question's going to come, and it's going to happen. If it's your first time here at the River Church, or you've been hanging out for a while, eventually there will be an issue that will come up. You'll be either offended by, with, by someone, you'll have an issue with someone, you'll have your own thing, whether it's political or social or, or economic or something that you really feel strongly about. And it will eventually come to a place where you'll think this might be worth bringing some division on. Okay, not... I'm not saying there are not important topics that we talk about as a church that we need to think through and pray through and really search out. But what I'm trying to say for myself, when I get an email that's kind of vibey, right? It's kind of like, ooh, that was that. I feel a little slimed by that email. Or an angry comment from somebody. And I, ooh, I don't like that. I have a choice to make. I can make this about me and that person. I can make this about my agenda my ideology, whatever group I'm attached to outside of the church, I can make it about that, but here's what I have to really calculate. Am I willing to cause damage to the miracle of the local church? Am I willing to do that? This isn't to say, again, don't bring your critiques. We're the holy magisterium of the river church. No, not at all. It's just to say, my number one ambition is to preserve and foster and encourage that beautiful thing called unity in the church. Among our diversity, really fostering that unity. This brings us to the last point. Obsessing over the ingredients, not volume. How do we avoid toxic churchianity? 
I want to say we focus on the ingredients involved in the thing we do together, and we stop focusing so much on the volume, and I mean that in two ways. The volume meaning the reach we have. What's our influence? Let's sit around and think about all the lives that are touched by the River Church. We don't focus so much on how big we can get and how far we can go, but we begin to say, are we using the right ingredients? Every time, are we a stickler for those ingredients? 1 Corinthians 3 10, Paul's talking about the ingredients involved in this thing called ministry. He says, By the grace given to me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Someone else is now building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is what? Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones or they're using wood, hay, and straw, well, guess what? God's judgment, that is God's examination of that church, will show what's gold and what's particle board. What's the beautiful silver and precious stones and what's asbestos that you're working with? Because it's quick and easy and malleable, but it gives you and everyone cancer, right? And this is the call to me, I think, and to all of us is to say River Church, because that's our community right now. River Church, let's think about our ingredients more than we think about how big we get. Let's think about our ingredients more than we think about how loud our voice is out there, wherever the heck there is. And if we become sticklers for ingredients, we're like that dude in the commercial, every, every beer commercial, right? There's always someone holding up like a a beaker, and they're looking at it with goggles on, and they're like, is this the right ingredients for this delicious beer? Okay. And if not, we get a new one, right? If we become sticklers for ingredients, rather than mass producers, you could sell a bajillion Big Macs. No offense to McDonald's, but you could sell a bajillion Big Macs. But if you've ever been, for example, to the standing room in Redondo Beach, I don't get any money or free burgers for saying this, but I wish I did. It's like a place where they make this burger, right? And you got to wait like 14 years for them to finish it. But they're like talking to the meat, giving it a pep talk, massaging it beforehand. It's infused with like delicious perfection. Every single cow went through like a yoga training program prior to being slaughtered for your meal, right? This place, you bite into that burger and you go, my gosh, this is good. It's housed, it used to be only, housed in a liquor store. No parking. Yet every time I went, there was a line of people. They all found it. Why? Because the ingredients were delicious. And I'm telling you, I am not interested in big, fat, hairy goals or a distant reach if that means we compromise ingredients at all. We'll get into that ingredient, the key ingredient, when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You'll hear at wedding season coming up. That ingredient of agape, that's what we want to be smathered in. But the beautiful call away from churchianity, away from this like abhorrent meal, the beautiful call is to say, get that junk out of there and be so careful how you make this sandwich. So don't take yourself so darn seriously. And y'all could come up, worship team, and get on that guitar and Jacob, Maheda, my man, getting married soon, next month, and start playing some keys. Godwin, preacher. 
And he's saying, don't take yourself, if that turkey in your life is that you take yourself too seriously, or you take, quote unquote, your Christian calling as this solemn, sad thing, then reflect on that. And if it's maybe that you really haven't taken seriously this beautiful thing called the people of God, you haven't taken that serious enough, then maybe reflect on that. And, and, and finally, and I want to say this as an application to all of us, as a staff team, that is those that, have, that are paid and set apart for time and focus on ministry, we want to put ourselves, and I'm putting us there, but I, we all want to put ourselves in a place where you, can, you should be able to, and I encourage you to, walk up to any member of the staff at any time, and you should be able to ask them, and please do this, how, how are you being loved on that staff as a staff member? And if the answer comes back with crickets, or it takes a while to search that out, then I want to say we're starting to fail. That's when we're starting to fail. If 10 people show up next week here, I don't care. I'm not worried about that. If the ingredients are right, God's going to do God's thing. And so we're not just saying this as, you should all do this in your grounded group. We're saying as a team of pastors and staff and, and worship folks, we're saying we want to do that in our team. We want delicious ingredients. And so let's do this. Let's go there. And it's going to be a delicious future. So I'll, I'll pray. Lord, thanks for this food. Food. Oh, my gosh. Okay, everyone's <laughs> hungry now. <laughs> Woo! Yes, thanks for this food, Lord. Thanks for this food that is, God, the delicious ingredients that you bought and paid for with your life, Lord. And as we ask you, Lord, to build new wine in us, Lord, we, we want to trade our old flames, and we want your fire, Lord, your holy, good fire. And we're sick of playing churchianity, Lord. We want to live and thrive in the caravan of love that is the people of God. Unadulterated, with no nitrates, fully organic people of God. We love you, Jesus. Be with us in this effort. Forgive us when we fail, which we're going to. Lead us back. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we stand? We're just going to sing the chorus.